This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man. <laughs> Boy! Thanks for checking out 90 for Chill, the podcast with Cat Bus Russ. This is Cat Bus Russ, and this is where I like to give my uh, content disclaimer and trigger warnings and... We're going to discuss The Truman Show with my older sister, the poetic critic. Uh, She is high-end autistic, and I do bring that into the conversation just to state how Truman is basically being raised in a situation where he's supposed to be, well, just not know how to act like a human just as a character. So I think that might offend some that I bring up the um, condition but I think it's quite fitting, and we'll go from there. Little hands, it is time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Welcome to 90 for Chill, the podcast with Cat Bus Russ. This is your host, Cat Bus Russ, and... If you want to get an idea of what our next episode might be about, you can follow me on Letterboxd. My username there is CMDarth. That's no underscores or hyphens. C is in cool. M is in movies. Darth is in Sith Lord. And if you want to fill your home with my dulcet tones, you can ask your Amazon Echo or your Google Nest device to play 90 for Chill, the podcast. And that should get you here. And this week, I bring the poetic critic back on to discuss one of her favorite Jim Carrey movies, Peter Weir's 1998 classic, I'm not going to deny that, The Truman Show. This is a movie I think that could have probably been a lot longer to be better. She likes the compact runtime. I think she thinks it's a perfect movie, and we just going to have to agree to disagree on that one. And it's an interesting uh, way we approach the episode she wanted to do a, essentially a running commentary on it, and I wanted to run off my notes. So don't bother syncing your DVDs up with the podcast. I don't think that's going to get you anywhere. So aside from that interesting experiment, I'm going to go and do a review for Earwig and the Witch, which is from Goro Miyazaki, the son of Hayao Miyazaki. This is just keeping up with the anime theme of the month. And this is, uh, so, Studio Ghibli feel on that one. And I'll say that um, I actually had the character design look so similar to Mary and the Witch's Flowers. I thought these two movies may be interchangeable. And as I say, both Ghibli influenced, so it's going to be an interesting experience. That's what I'll come back to you with. Otherwise... As always, rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast apps. If you want to be on the show, send an email to russthebus07 at gmail.com. And I think it's about time to get on with the show. Erica, you haven't ever wished family would adopt you, have you? Nope. Anybody who'd choose me would be pretty unusual. (gasps) We'll take this one. For the first time in my life, I'm being made to do something I don't want to do. Now then, let's you and I get a few things straight. My name is Bella Yaga. I'm a witch. Great! 
you agree that you'll teach me magic, and I agree to help you out. If you work really hard, I shan't do anything to hurt you. A love potion for the boy next door? Look, these are pretty useless to me. The spell I believe you're looking for is somewhere towards the back. Hang on, you actually talk? Of course I do, just not very often. In this household, there's one rule that's crucial. You must on no account for any reason ever dare disturb the Mandrake. Don't be rude. A hole left by a witch can only be filled by a witch. I'll be learning magic. Well, so I was told. Can't wait to start. And I've just concluded watching Goro Miyazaki's 2020 feature earwig and the witch which as i said before i get at least the artwork is so similar to mary and the witch's flower it kind of got me confused and maybe that was studio ghibli's i did just do the wikipedia and realize that g before h is j i suppose but i digress letter g should just be for g there's no reason we shouldn't just be using J's. Again, I digress, English major, uh, whatever. Um, and so I was kind of turned away from this just because of this computer-generated animation that this is definitely dedicated to. And that's not necessarily fair. It kind of does feel like it's a step back, at least in forms of anime, in the sense that everything kind of looks like a doll. But it really opens the doors i think now we can um there's no excuse for them to just use the same mouth motions for everything so hey a little work i think this is gonna be something grand and i'm just sorry that uh goro miyazaki always is the fall guy for studio ghibli when it comes to um weaker films but i don't think this uh is that weak a film uh it's i think it's fun but the narrative is definitely very rocky it's just pretty simple irig is left at an orphanage from her mother who was running away from a coven of witches this coven of witches is actually her bandmates so eventually her bandmates find well the drummer of the band Bella Yaga, which is a real clever name, needs to have an extra hand helping her make spells. So they adopt Earwig, now known as Erica Wig. So, and then just the shenanigans go on from there as uh, Earwig is trying to figure out how to f win over both Bella Yaga and the demon like Mandrake. Somebody who's very solitary, voiced by Richard Grant, and her only ally in trying to make things even is the cat who serves as a familiar, the black cat, I should also state, that serves as a familiar for spellcasting, um, voiced by Dan Stevens. His name is Thomas, who he, he, she keeps calling Custard based off her best friend in the orphanage. So, 
it's I as I say I love the cat. I think the rock and roll is kind of cool. The incorporation of it. And there's just nothing spectacular about this, but I think there's enough whimsy. It gives me the vibes of, say, My Neighbors, the Yamadas. Like, it's more like little stunt stories. So, as I say, the narrative isn't solid, but I think it's a lot of fun. I think it'll put, uh, you put it in front of your kids and it's going to amuse them. And I think it's clever enough to amuse you as well. So, as I say, it's an experiment and after the successful look of Mary and the Witch by the once successor to Studio Gib- Ghibli, Studio Panak, it kind of, uh, well, I know that Miyazaki is supposed to have a movie this year, so maybe everything's going to be set straight and um, all will be right with the anime world. But if you're looking for some amusement, I think this is an HBO Max exclusive. And if you're wise, you're going to have Max. Comments are still headed. What else is on? Yeah, let's do what else is Coming to you now from the largest studio ever constructed, it's the Truman Show! Yeah! Good morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> what if? No scripts. No cue cards. Morning, Spencer. How's it going? What if you were watched every moment of your life? How many cameras you got there in that town? 5,000. I believe Truman is the first child to have been legally adopted by a corporation. That's correct. Brilliant. What if everyone you knew was pretending? Hi, honey. Look what I got at the checkout. Dishwasher safe. (laughs) That's amazing. What if your world was make-believe? Cue the sign. While the world he inhabits is counterfeit. I'm not allowed to talk to you. That's how I look. Not your type. There's nothing fake about Truman himself. What if you didn't know it? Until now. A lot of strange things have been happening. Stand by ring cam. Is he looking at us? Do you think he knows? I think I'm mixed up in something. Something big. We accept the reality with which we're presented. Everybody's pretending, Truman. Get out of here. Come and find me. Truman? Truman! Truman! Anything happen? No. Mm-hmm. You may find yourself in another part of the world. It's like the whole world revolves around me. Everybody seems to be in on it. I'm going away for a while. You may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. You may ask yourself, how did I get here? I'm not in on it, Truman, because the last thing that I would ever do is lie to you. Fade up music. That's our hero shot. He's gone. Okay? Yes! Wanna do it again? No! Find him. Truman, where are you going? You can tell us. How do we stop him? Give me some light. Is that the best you can do? Cut transmission. I like your pen. I was wondering that myself. Jim Carrey. The Truman Show. Watch what happens. So this is 90 for Chill Podcast with Cat Lost Russ, and this week's guest is the Poetic Critic. That's the Poetic Critic on Letterboxd. And uh, last year, 2022, I think it was, they made a big deal for cans and somehow tried to incorporate... Our pronunciation is can. And, and that... And Let me have something over the French, please. <laughs> well, we're 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 in Illinois, not we're in Illinois, not Illinois. 
Last year, the Cannes Film Festival had its 75th anniversary celebration. Uh, award shows and film festivals often come up with a special poster or logo to represent each year's event. And since it was the 75th for Cannes, they wanted to pick something really special that spoke to the power of film and the image and how we use the image, how we use fiction and art to how they interact with reality. So the final image they chose for the poster, and they, and they had the big poster right over the big famous staircase at the Palace du Cinema that you climb up there, everybody does the red carpet stuff on, is a still from the ending of Peter Weir's 1998 feature, The Truman Show. In its, in its rather famous final sequence of the, our protagonist climbing a staircase seemingly into the air. And it's fascinating to think now, in 2023, 25 years on from that movie's original theatrical release in June 1998, that a film that was a major studio release starring one who was an actor, Jim Carrey, who was legitimately one of the biggest stars in the world, could that a story that is basically a hard sci-fi film with uh, comedic, there's elements of comedy and drama, and even I would argue horror elements, was a, a huge release for Paramount Pictures. It was not a blockbuster on the scale of something like Armageddon or the American Godzilla film, which were also big tentpole releases that particular summer. But it did do quite well at the box office and was kind, kind of the beginning of Jim Carrey being taken a bit more seriously as an actor. Just this past week, another podcast, this had Oscar Buzz, argued that Jim Carrey not being nominated for Best Actor, the Best Actor Oscar for this film was one of the great snubs in the history of the Academy. It was seen as shocking at the time and still shocks a lot of people now, judging from what I read on Twitter. The film, The Truman Show, directed by Peter Beer and, Bear and written by Andrew Nichol, has become pretty quickly one of the Finding 90s movies. Uh, in the last hurrah of Hollywood, became, before it became totally corporate and IP dominated, but also before the reality television craze began. And with that in mind, and looking ahead to this summer's releases, where we're seeing kind of the superhero bubble starting to deflate to an extent, and most of the summer's big tentpoles being sequels or remakes of older properties. We're a long way from how in 1998 people were getting excited, not just over dueling asteroid impending collision with Earth movies, with this and another film Paramount released that summer, Deep Impact, which I guess just got a 4K release from Paramount or Mulan, or uh, Godzilla 98, 
But that was also the summer that movies like The Truman Show and Saving Private Ryan and Out of Sight and Blade and many other varied and creative and unusual films were mainstream Hollywood releases that got the kind of advertising campaigns that you would see afforded to something like Godzilla 98 and found appreciative audiences and are still loved today in a way that I don't think the remake of The Little Mermaid is going to be. Well, okay, now we're... Um, well, it's one of those, I think this is, uh, when it comes to Little Mermaid, you keep bringing up the concept of Disney adults, and with Disney adults, there's obviously Disney bastards, I mean children. <laughs> and um, what I'm basically saying, this is kind of the Super Mario Brothers, the, I'm sorry, the Super Mario Brothers movie argument we had in the sense that this is something for the Disney adults to finally have something to bond with their to truly bond with their kids about. Oh, this is my movie. Now you're gonna get your movie. But that doesn't make sense. Uh, little children still love and appreciate the original animated features once they get to them. But that they in want itself some... has been a but shared experience for years. I... That's why reissues were so profitable back in the day. Well, people. That was why the seven-year rule was invented. But people, people today don't want reissues. They want something new. They want something new every seven years. But that doesn't make s If they want something new, then they should just do some new stories. No, no, they have, they have their IP. They want their IP. They so that's why we're getting Aladdin too. I do have to watch the first Aladdin live action because I'm a Guy Ritchie completist, provided it does not feature Madonna. So, yeah, I'm a little behind on that. But no, it's. It's like why video games can be reissued and re-released every, so like, for every generation you get the same video games. It's basically like we want to keep doing this over and over again. It's dare I say it's an open. It, dare I say the Disney the Disney adult is the new junkie. Thank you fentanyl for ruining junk. Couldn't just have a bunch of heroin addicts. No. Well, it is an interesting argument mm. because um, Drew McWeeny has talked about how the studios now have to keep you consistently on the hook. Yes. So you can't complete a narrative. Oh, most definitely. You you're always supposed to get excited about the next chapter, right. and that may be wearing off a bit, at least when it comes to the superhero franchise. Um, no, I think it just needs it needs the right right shot in the arm it's just an adrenaline shot away from but that's the thing you can't it that's not how you should engage with art okay it's simply straight adrenaline all the time this is not to say that there's always going to be a place for junk filmmaking and junk pop culture that gives you cheap high like fast food it can be fun and tasty in proper portions and especially if prepared well uh, yeah, so don't expect that from the Champagne Popeyes. Okay, current events, folks. Which brings me to, um, do we drop this next week or middle of cans or on the kickoff day? 
The film was released on June 1st, was the official premiere in Los Angeles, right, with Wikipedia, and June 5th. Can, can, can starts on the, yeah, can starts on the 16th, runs through the 26th. Right. Well, it's up to you. Yeah, okay. So, um, but, no, I, I mean, it's, when you say, what, that's not how we should be approaching art. When has Hollywood, at least corporate Hollywood, really ever given this art? You can say, well, the Truman Show. And I can say, yes, or was this them trying to beat Ed TV? It's interesting that there are the two dueling movies in this case. I mean, I that, was, that was the thing of the late 90s. This, yeah. this is, we got, as you brought up, the asteroid movies. Yeah, they had the, the early Pixar versus DreamWorks thing. Ants versus Bugs yeah. Life, yes. That was also in 98. And leaving, and I, I'm, as far as DreamWorks I mean, goes, I'm with those who feel that if the Prince of Egypt had become the blockbuster and not Shrek, the world would be better off for it. Okay, as the atheist, as Jessica, as <laughs> Jessica Ritchie beautifully put it, that something like that. But then again, but again, there is no reason that you can't make even a mainstream, middle-brow appealing movie or a children's movie extraordinarily beautiful if you wanted to, and something that has a lasting value because. There was one thing I've noticed on Twitter. Uh, the film Twitter people, they don't obsess over it, but this is a movie that really did touch a generation, or maybe two at this point, 25 years on, of moviegoers. This is a genuinely beloved movie. Um, no, I'm not saying... In a way that you're not... You, I don't see something like Ant-Man, Wasp, Quantumania. Okay, or, all right. But, but keep in mind, this is Peter Rear, not um, the guy who isn't um, Edgar Wright. I see your point here. Yes, no, this is, this is something... But this was a time when major studio, big directors who had big resumes on their hands... We're not being shoved into the IP factory. Well, so no, but they're but okay. Keep in mind, the IP factory was pretty shallow at that point. Not necessarily. You had the Bond movies. movies. Otherwise, if it wasn't somebody slashing teenagers up, it was pretty shallow. Your Batman, yeah, we ran that one in the ground, didn't we? Uh, your Superman, okay, yeah, Canon Film Group, that was a good decision there. Um. No, the IP was pretty dry at the time. Well. And it goes back to the modern um, CG. Thank you, Jurassic Park. I am going to keep stumping for how overrated that movie is. Yes, beautiful effects. But once we had the technology, and then that opened up pretty much like we found, found Texas of IP. Well, the 90s was the decade, yes, when franchise mentality began to take hold in Hollywood. And we had enough TV and older movies by that point, along with older sources of inspiration like novels or stage plays and, or just public domain mythology to make movies about. It, Paramount alone in the 90s did a ton of Saturday Night Live-inspired movies, most of which have gone into the dustbin of history. Oh, right, I was about to say, they probably say haven't made a, aside from Wayne's World, I don't think 
I mean, combined, they probably didn't make $500 million. I don't think they made five... The rest of those made $5 million. I'm exaggerating. Yeah, so I was about to say, no, 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 I saw the ladies' man. Yes, I saw the ladies' man with you. That was fine junk. That was fine junk, though, thank And we saw Coneheads a few times, which I think is underappreciated. I think people... I think Coneheads does have some small cult, but it's not very vocal if there is. No, no. But the point is that nowadays, IPs, all that's left for some companies, particularly Disney, and that many of our most talented directors are getting funneled into doing movies like that. You mentioned Guy Ritchie with Aladdin. Robert Zemeckis has fallen into this. Tim Burton's been chewed up and spat out. I mean, this past week, they made the announcement they're finally moving forward with Beetlejuice 2, a concept that's been being kicked around since the 90s. And pretty much everyone was just hanging their heads on film Twitter Well, that it's come to that. Well, here, but again... Because I we I, know that this is a tapped-out talent. I don't think... Okay. And people who are not going to be excited but, to be there aside from the money. But you see, that's just it. Tim Burton giving us his legacy sequel. And I, I am curious about that one. But, you know, I'd say, given that 20... That close to 30 years have passed... Well, 35 years have passed uh i i'm i'm willing to go to that well but uh i would say the reason you had the truman show is more of the studios trying to yes we have deep impact our meteor movie comet movie i guess let's not let's not deny that they thought bigger than michael bay for just a moment um or at least i think a comet's cooler well this is give me my space vampires but what i'm getting what i'm getting at is that with um, while cinema was still cinema, dare I say at the time, you had to have something to balance to show that you're legitimate. Especially when you have the Weinsteins pretty much taking up all the Oscars. Well, that was, that was just really starting at this point in the decade. I don't know. Remember, 98 is the year of the Life is Beautiful slash shit. Shakespeare, Shakespeare in love, love, but sweet. But ninety four was Pulp Fiction. Yeah, they, they they've been they've been waiting in the wings. I mean, for a while. I mean, right. who did the English but, patient pay, uh, patient? But going back to the studio era, it was generally agreed upon that you had to have a mix of films to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. So you had your horror movies, and you had your comedies, and you had your big spectacle movies, and you. Had, you can have just a whole variety of choices to work with and see what hits with the public. And if something hits, maybe you'll try and find something similar. Well, oh, English Patient, Miramax, as I'm saying. That's true. Yeah. It, yeah it, in, it, it, in 96. Although that was mainly because 96 was generally seen as just a bad year for mainstream movies. Well, but that's just it. You, you we we acknowledge... had to go to the minor indie scenes to get anything exciting. Well, but that again just says that there isn't that like if we had a genuinely good, very Brady sequel. I mean, who, who things could have changed there? I'm just saying again, IP was not as accessible for creators at that time, and sadly, you get creators. Um, Let's go to the MCU, where you have Kenneth Branagh, who wanted to do Thor. I don't think that was a, just a money grab. 
It's true. Sometimes they do want to do these out of an interest in the source material. And when you think of, uh, say, Zoe, ja- uh, Zoe Zhao, correct? Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao, sorry. Yes, I know. That really says, yeah, you've, you keep saying you spent two years studying Mandarin. Um, and no, I think she had that lined up before Nomadland cleaned house. And most people, most people will say out of the, I, from what I've gathered, out of the phase four, um, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings is probably the best movie. No. I don't count for, I don't count that Sony bollocks, thank you. Uh. Hashtag not my season. is probably the least liked of the phase four. Oh, sorry, sorry. I thought she directed... Shang-Chi. No, and Shang-Chi's not that well regarded. Uh, From the people I've spoken to, um, Shang-Chi is a worthwhile movie. Eternals is meh. It is true that Chloe Zhao was, uh, did get attached to the project before, before she won her Oscars and stuff. But it does seem like whenever anybody comes out of the indie scene now or does something that isn't completely corporate, the next thing they do is shovel you into something that is. One of the bigger recent examples is that the Paddington movies, these UK-based productions, were really, really loved. They're both directed by Paul King. And then the only thing they could think to do with him in the studio system was attached him to a Willy Wonka prequel musical. That sounds like something though he'd want to do at least that makes sense. I, I don't go from songs my brother taught me in Nomad Land to special effects affair. You're dealing with a CG CG um, bear who almost made, single-handedly made the monarchy tolerable for the remainder of Elizabeth's reign. Well, as as we get ready to start what's going to be for those to make it clear sort of a running commentary on the Truman Show. Um, a little quick backstory about the production process is worth in order, looking at Wikipedia. Uh, Andrew Nichols' original script was written in May 1991 as a treatment. You know, basically a summary and was much more of a thriller, and it was set in New York City, and if you go by a three-act structure, a fake New York City, I should know, and if you go by a three-act structure, the, the, where this, the finished film ends would have only been the start of the third act in the original conception, that the third act would have been about Truman entering the real world. They made a lot of... De- Peter Weir changed some of these elements in development. In particular, he changed the setting that Truman is raised in because he didn't think the original concept was something people would actually like to watch. Growing up, well, that that he. The Truman's life should be as idyllic as possible. Right, which I don't get because I don't know how we could get obsessed with looking at Morton frickin' Illinois. Well, I'm going to talk about that later. 
Because the, it does point to some things we're seeing in modern culture. Yes, it does. But yeah, that, that's somebody just summed it up with TV tropes. We wanted a show, an in-universe show that you could imagine people wanted to watch. Mm. Now, he was not the first person attached. Originally, Brian De Palma was considered. Originally, Nickel wanted to direct it himself, but he was uh, convinced to step aside. He got extra money, mm. according to the wiki. Brian De Palma was under negotiation. Uh, Tim Burton, Sam Raimi, Terry Gilliam, David Cronenberg, Barry Sonnenfeld, and even Spielberg were all kind of considered, but Weir signed on in early 1995 at Nichols' recommendation. Now, apparently Brian Singer wanted to direct, but he didn't have enough experience for Paramount. And Weir wanted the film to be lighter, more idyllic. And... Jim Carrey was signed on by the end of 1995. They did have to wait on him to get Cable Guy and Liar Liar done to uh, start filming, which is why there's that long gap between the sign-on and the final release. Well, okay. But Carrey was Weir's first choice for the role, apparently. Well, and they could appreciate that. Um, I do mention there's... We'll get to that. Yeah, but... um... When you when you say when you say it's you know um, here's the thing again when you're saying oh it's a beautiful drama dropped by the studio system and it's like yeah but you attach the biggest star in the in the world to it well one of that point well who else who else in ninety Tom Hanks Hanks was on yeah okay Hanks was on a roll but we. He didn't have, like, people would go see a Tom Hanks movie just to, oh, it's a Tom Hanks movie, it's going to be good. Uh, Jim Carrey, that was for the, that was for everybody. Every immature buddy. It's interesting to think about how in the IP age, one reason we had the death, the whole death of the movie star narrative is there, I realize is because... The real movie stars were more likely to bring, consistently bring in a lot of money, but not billion-dollar money. Right, that's what I'm saying. You could say Tom Hanks, but, but Jim Carrey... But you Carrey's... could also say that about Carrey, because uh, Carrey's films, you know, like a lot of comics, a lot of this, their stuff doesn't travel well internationally, so you can't depend on foreign takes. No, okay, that's, that's fair, but... Uh... So... so but he was as big a movie star as there was at the time. And I'm going to get into why I, the thinking behind why we went with him well, as we get into this. And mm-hmm. I think at this point, if you would like to play along, uh, after I'll take the tip from Riff Tracks, uh, and we'll do a bit where you may pause the recording if you'd like to take get up a copy of the movie for yourself to watch along as we go into our further discussion. Rawr. <laughs> That's not Rawr. how it <laughs> As soon as the Paramount logo fades, you may pause and come back up. Okay. Alright, so... Here we are. Yeah, not really... By the end of it... Like, so, my first experience with this movie was uh, at a bar. I had just moved down to Champaign. Um, 
and it was a it was cool back when it was not really a towny bar. It's called Bentley. So this is like a few years ago. Then. Yes, uh, we're talking seven years ago approximately. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was only like three or four people at a bar, which is what I like on a weeknight. Mm-hmm. And you know, just BSing with the bartender, and we got that on Netflix going, and then I think we followed up with uh, I got to stay f after at that time, developing myself a a. a personality before the um you know oh yeah you're working third shifts you don't Mm -hmm. get to go to bars anymore um but we start but by the time i caught on it was just as uh we get to the truman father reveal yeah so with that said it um so it pretty much goes right to Kristoff, and it's like, mm-hmm. this is a pretty isolated half hour. You don't need the rest of the movie by that point. <laughs> Essentially, like, okay, I got, I knew what I was coming into, and this is all very, this is this is probably the strongest acting I would say Carrie has in the entire feature, as he's escaping this world or working towards right. that, and to start the film by going and like, oh, here's our opening credits. I think it kind of you had a chance for a surprise because you immediately drop the drop the um, light. Well, it is interesting how they choose to structure the film and how much it tips the audience off on, and what it hides from the audience. It just, but that's just it. I don't think it really hides anything, especially after the ad campaign. Well, it it is true. It is interesting. I remember Roger Ebert managed to go into this film not aware of the full ramifications of the plot. And that, and he actually recommended readers saying that if you want to see this film, do not read my review. <laughs> you should see the film first. Oh yeah, we just spent a buck on the Chicago Sun for a movie review. Like, who buys a Chicago Sun Times? Um, All right. It's, um, and I'm just going through my, now I do, do appreciate the, again, it's kind of like, you, I really appreciate that the fear of dogs element is once you get to the, to that, like, you could have hidden so much stuff, and I think it'd been even more impactful for the well, third act. Well, I think part of the movie is not so much what it hides about Truman's environment, but what Truman actually feels about it. And what, where the real drama of the story is, is that the whole movie, in many ways, is about actualizing your own potential. And I think this ties into why we are wanted to go with Jim Carrey as the lead. You had some other ideas of who might have played this part oh, at the yeah, time. You're now, right. I want you to run those down, and I'll tell well, you what I think. Robin Williams may be a little too old by this point, and I don't think we wanted it, but it'd been a good follow-up to... Dead Poet Society. No, no, fudge Dead Poet Society. See, I see 95% for this movie on Rotten Tomatoes, according to iTunes. Um, and then I, but I'm just thinking, like, most Americans know him for Dead Poet Society. Uh, Peter Rear. Yeah. Not Witness. Not... Uh, oh, Witness was a huge hit. It was, but I'm just saying, definitely not Mosquito Coast. That is, that's an excellent movie, Mosquito Coast. I'm not saying it isn't an excellent movie. I'm saying 
and definitely not his Australian stuff with Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dead Poet Society is the most lamest directed movie he could have possibly done. Uh, oh, Ebert's review of that is hilarious if you've never read it. I've heard good takes from it, like um, on the Rewatchables podcast with the Ringer Network, is Bill Simmons always like, all right, let's see what our, our, our man Raj says. <laughs> Two yeah. and a half stars. Oh, gosh, you missed that one. Well, um, he and Siskel got booed during the, if we picked the winners, Oscar special they did in early 90 when Dead Poets Society was up for Best Picture, so that they didn't feel that movie deserved to be nominated. And the crowd at the Disney MGM Studios studio audience booed. <laughs> so, um, but there's nothing, no. there's nothing challenging. You can see, and it takes a while to come in. Um, like, right now, I don't like it. It's being shot like a movie, necessarily. Or, again, this is where you hide everything for that third act reveal. I mean, now he's about to, I'm sure, once we get to one of those limited cameras, which kind of puts you in that television phase. Right. Well... Um, But again, well, what about some of the, let's talk about some of the other actors first that you thought could have played this part. Oh, yeah. Um, So, obviously, Robin Williams, I mean, might be a little too old for some people's taste, but he definitely has a very, like, when you look through his filmography, and I bring that up as, "Eh, it's not as much of a snub as the internet wants to think. (laughs) Um, Like, yeah, he did Popeye, but then, then he followed that up with, the, um, oh, it shows him as a character, and then he does something stupid. And then he does something. Then he does Moscow and Hudson. Then he does something stupid. Then he does Good Morning Vietnam, where you have a character who justifiably turns into Robin Williams or Jim Carrey, the mm-hmm. the personality that we get later on into it. Um, this was a very clever bit, though the um, trying to reconstruct Natasha McElhone. Yeah. Which, this is a big year for her. Be it the MacGuffin or chasing the MacGuffin. Ronin, must see. Um, so, yeah, Robin Williams just has the range. Uh, Mike Myers would be an interesting choice. He definitely was not hot Ma- at this time. No, Mike Myers was not hot. An interesting thing he, I he found ju- out. He just had um, Austin Powers, and you would not be able to bounce off Austin Powers in this one. Did you know that... Uh, Carrie was supposed to be Dr. Evil in Austin Powers. That wouldn't surprise me. That that, that got would have been in the way of a liar liar shoot, so that didn't work. Okay, so uh, otherwise, this would have been a great role for Johnny Depp. It, it would have at least would have gotten us acclimated to his I'm going to be a ca- hot looking character actor mode that he tried to carry already, his entire career. Well, he was already doing a lot of that in the 90s. I don't think he was. I if mean, anything, he might have seemed too young for the part. Right, but I would I would say only Cry Crybaby is the only one that comes to immediate. My, yeah, you had Edward Scissorhands, but that's just a, such a strange role. Well, I don't think it would have worked with Depp because what I sense, if my understanding is correct about what Weir saw in Jim Carrey, was that, as I said, he was Weir was. Can, wanted Carrie for this role, and Carrie signed on for it at the end of 1995 at a point where he had had his breakthrough year with the first Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, and, Dumb and, Dumber. and in 95 he got uh, Batman Forever and the second Ace Ventura out. But what all that speaks to is the fact that unlike Williams, or a Tom Hanks type, or even someone like Johnny Depp, 
mass audiences didn't know that Carrie could play things beyond broad comedy at that point. But I think that, um, well, this is something you tackle three movies ago, though, or right after 94. But... If you, if you want to be taken, like, as I say, I think half of Jim Carrey, when he goes full Jim Carrey, oh, that was exciting. <laughs> want to do it again? Um, but you're not so that, that's focusing what I'm saying. on the point. The point of the story, the whole I, thing that makes the story so moving is that They've cast that Weir was going with an actor who, at this point, seemed to be to the mass, to the masses, and certainly to a lot of critics, all surfaces. He was defined at this point. He was defined by the catchphrases that children would imitate at school. He was limited to a set of very broad characters who did not have, let's face it, a huge amount of depth beyond what I would say was his best film of this first stretch, The Mask. Yes. So he had the most untapped potential going of all the A-list actors in Hollywood at the time. I'm not, I'm not saying it was a bad decision to cast him. I'm just, but again, not, going on the... But you're not letting me finish. The whole thing about Truman is that because he's been raised in an artificial, deliberately artificial world to be happy and cheerful because what else could can he be is he allowed to be he is con, forced to conceal parts of his own longing to see more of the world and follow what passions that he's had since childhood a natural curiosity he's had that Effectively, the studio system isn't allowing him to express. And this also plays into why I think they alternate angles throughout the film in the Sea, ha in the sea Haven, in the Seaview Island scenes, between these views that are clearly from the perspective of hidden cameras on the set of the actors, and the ones that are from alternative angles. I mean, what's one of the key lines in the conclusion of the film is, you never had a camera in my head. Effectively, when we see the non-camera perspectives of Truman, that's giving us, if not from his absolute point of view, but an omniscience that the viewers at home don't have and are set up in such a way that we are feeling his life from the life that he can't discuss with others or that others so easily dismiss as Marlon does when Truman is talking about Fiji. Or in this scene, this is, although the clips here are construed as what the camera saw at the time, it's as much Truman's mem horrible memory of seeing his father die. No, and I... the emotional tenor of that. A lot of this also comes through in how the film is scored, alternating between the original soundtrack and the snippets of either classical music or recycled Philip Glass cues. Mm -hmm. the, the, Philip Glass's cues for this film 
uh, are lifted from many of his previous movie scores, including Palakatsi and Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. It's interesting to see how the film chooses to, I mean, it chooses to use the music as again, a, Windows is to whose perspective we're seeing things from at the time. Right, but I'm gonna even tackle though that that one, pretty much his only line is in Kristoff begging him off is, you know, I think it's, doesn't really have enough, like, it's not sold enough, personally. I think it's like, I'd say blink and miss it move type move. Oh gosh, I would, I would be, uh, just seeing the bit, seeing all this promotion for child rearing, it's like, yes. again, I always joke, it's a good thing I don't have a, I didn't have a smartphone, I, I don't carry a pocket knife on me, because mm -hmm. if I were to go into a Chuck E. Cheese, I would probably go and Google, how do I do a DIY vasectomy? Um, so, I, I just, um, but the so... Whole I, I don't know. It, again, I think a lot of it goes goes back to, well, you're trying to create an idyllic place where he has to be happy. Um, I don't know that... I, I'm not necessarily sold on this, that, that kind of... Change. I mean, change. Basically, hey, Hollywood, I, I'm currently not with the guild. <laughs> give, give me, uh, me $100,000, I'll get you a remake. Um... I mean, so we're that it's really just arguing um, quarterback strategies on that. Um, so now I have a note just in my notes saying, you know, AI. Like I could see this now. Well, there you go. There's my premise. We let Chat GPT put Adam Driver on his own little island and go from there. No dinosaurs this time. Maybe Scarjo. Sequel to to Marriage Story. Boom. I'm just, I'm on a roll. Alright. So. The point of, but ultimately the point of the story and how is that the audience comes to an understanding of how, along with Truman himself, the story is about his self-realization that he not only isn't happy, but is metaphorically drowning in, on Sea Haven Island because no, no one else really considers what he might want. But They're working from the perspective that the life they've given him is everything the average American, I think that's important, would want out of life. We live in 25 years on, one of, but even as early as the 1980s, nostalgia for the 1950s, which is very much the mode of Sea Haven Islands decor and attitudes and fashion and even the town you know only has so much diversity in it in terms of all the extras they've cast most of them are still predominantly white is this idyllic idea that the Reagan era very much emphasized of the 50s being a golden age in America when discounting things like the paranoia of the Cold War or McCarthyism, which is interesting given that Carrie would later do a film that kind of has a more nuanced view of that era. 
with the Majestic is that everyone, there's a lot of society dearly believing that the 50s were the golden age of America, of America, the post-war economic prosperity where everyone, I mean, everyone in Seaview appears to be solidly middle class. No, no, they're, they're solidly assholes, as we just watched the <laughs> South Park answer to the homeless. Yeah. Um, just shoving, shoving him onto a bus and sending him outwards, or dare I say, uh, Greg Abbott and Ron Santos' approach to immigrants. Um, so, let's see. So, Truman's existence assumes that everyone would be secretly wishes they would that they could have a life like this and be happier, one where. A world exists, but you never actually have to enter outside your bubble, but you never actually need to interact with it. That it's just some kind of exotica that you might appropriate or something well, like that. Well, here, here I would go, though, the flaw being that I don't think anybody, like, as I say, could people be obsessed with enjoying the mental torture, um, judging that fear factor, fear factor was a thing, yes, but... Um, Granted, that ran its course. This well, was on for 30 seasons, 30 years, essentially. And well, from there... Remember, the... this, does, this is one of those science fiction stories. It's basically 20 minutes into the future. No, I, I, I get that. I can, I can get, I get that. There's going to be a scene coming up where I'm going to discuss this a little further as well, to why the Truman Show could be so popular. Well, you say 20 minutes in the future. It's like, eh, I, did, I just, I don't know. I mean, um... I do like the Fiji bit, but that's just because I'm a Red Dwarf fan. It is funny that... <laughs> Everybody wants to go to Fiji. Um, but no, it's like basically why I just... Um, I would say it seems like a pretty boring 29 seasons until, oh, every Murphy's Law takes over every element of this. First being the light, second being this, the rainfall. Where it's like, geez, I could have probably produced that better. Just keep it on him. Like, and then show him a cartoon when he got back, like, instead of another brainwashing mechanism. Well, um, it is interesting to think about precursors to the Truman Show that exist, because that is, oh, Olan Jones, this uh, actress has been... Uh, done a fair deal of work with Tim Burton. Yes, no, she she's um she's the uh, ultra religious neighbor in Emily Scissorhands. Okay. Like her. Uh, anyway, as we go into the flashback of Truman's college years. Uh, Gosh, that was the entire reason I'm moving out this. Well, not the entire reason, but when I moved to Champaign, that was shortly after like applying to many universities, getting accepted, and then. Going to my little sister's guidance counselor, best friend at good old ICC, Illinois Central College. And her response was, well, you probably should go and get this accounting course taken care of. You could do that right here at ICC. And then, well, you got accepted to Bradley. It's local for you. Just go there. Okay. Now so talking... I'm just saying bigger world type stuff. Oh, gosh. I mean, I would not tolerate this college stuff that... Is there hard alcohol? Is there hard alcohol in Sea Haven? There probably is to a certain extent, but 
There was a extensive world building done that doesn't appear in this movie about how the world would work. Among, I remember reading online. I kind of think this is, should be a two and a half to three hour movie. Well, I know the shooting script was published and it had a lot of additional detailing about about the world. And among them, it was mentioned that all the food Truman eats is relatively low calorie or what you'd call light, not, not, nothing heavy on fat because they would not risk, they didn't want to risk him developing heart disease or anything that would shorten his life. Yes, but now that I think about it, um, so, I, I don't know if you've watched The Matrix. Oh, I've seen The Matrix, okay, the concept was released nine months after this yes, film. The, the concept of residual self-image that I always like the joke, the reason I know we're not in a simulation is because there's fat people. There's no fat people in the Matrix. And, and you've just pretty much described like how you make sure there's no fat people in Sea Haven. <laughs> Were there any fat people in this movie at all? I'm going to even challenge. Don't you pick on a little, chub, little chubbiness in Paul Giamatti. That is his charm. I think it is hilarious <laughs> that this was one of Paul Giamatti's... Paul Giamatti is one of the technicians in Christophe's base is hilarious given that his next major role after this was as Bob Smuda and Man on the Moon. Well, and before that it was Pig Vomit. Yeah, he, he played Pig Vomit <laughs> in private parts. So, there was kind of a theme running in the early Giamatti roles. And that speaks to another thing I'd like to get to later. Okay. But in any case, it is interesting that how... I did not you, dig that that Ma, Mama Truman does say, uh, hey, it's about time we do something with the homeless. And being a pro-union guy, yes, I, I appreciate the elevator gag, but... Okay, it's these scenes and how they're framed and shot especially yes. that we really are basically be, be, being given Truman's side of the story here and how he's and his how he feels. And I, I, I just want to make sure since... They're watching it at the Truman Bar, and then the uh, the uh, manager goes to the two people and says, um, "Hey, we got this on the greatest hits. You got this on the greatest hits <laughs> yeah. tape. Yeah, we, we don't need to. You, let's let's get back to the patrons. Right. Uh, so they literally. I mean, I mean, they should have had this stuff ready when they had to cease transmission." <laughs> uh, later on like oh you can go and plug in a flashback on a live tv show and you don't do that during your technical difficulties you couldn't have little truman do it or at least make the make the interesting with little yeah. truman in a play or something like flashback but anyway I, there is kind of this very natural feel to the the interaction in this scene compared to how fundamentally because Truman being raised by his environment means that he does act, act at least on the surface, like everyone else. And yes, he's, a, he's essentially because, a drone. Yeah, yeah, he's effectively become a happy drone who has his own catchphrase and parrot, and uh, you know makes the same kind of jokes with the uh, like the vet, the news the newsman. But in this case, this is a lot more natural. He's acting much more naturally here, I, I'd talking actually... with. Sylvia. I'd actually say he's acting. Le 
Okay. We got two different levels of naturalism, uh, judging that our, by our um, spectrum range. I'm saying, like, dude, you are totally screwing this up, man. He doesn't know how to I, make it But I'm just saying, you basically... Like so, what I'm getting at is... What reality TV needs more is autistic people. Because essentially they've they've trained them to not be able to relate to people outside the world. Like what is he going to do once he gets off the set at the end of the feature? We'll get to that when we get there. Now, but... And keep in mind the best actors are autistic autistic ones. Or dare I say artistic if we go back to South Park (laughs) with the vaccines and after a while. Cart- Mrs. Cartman ends up taking all of them. I, I have bad news, Eric. <laughs> She's just doing some Bob Ross stuff. Okay. Yes. But. There. The fact that it doesn't. It feels a lot less artificial is one of the things are, that the camera is. Camera. When it is working from the non-studio perspective is a little more off-kilter and it's allowing for more uh, the camera can move and shift in a way that the cameras that that are placed in the set cannot I I guess it's more of just like eh, you know, after the success of found footage I mean well, as I was trying to say earlier, it's interesting to think about the precursors the Truman Show had. Reality television, as we currently understand it, really dates back at least to the early 1970s and the PB- famous PBS series in American Family, where a documentary crew was allowed into this traditional family unit over the course of a year and filmed its residence. And this, it was successful enough that it inspired an Albert Brooks parody, his first feature in 1979 called Real Life, which yeah. is a very funny movie and kind of, kind of plays around with how much more difficult doing that kind of a docu- fly-on-the-wall documentary would have been at the time. That there, you, you have to see what the cameras look like in that one. Yeah. And how Albert Brooks's character, who is the producer and director of the show, is trying to shape the action as it evolves. Well, I would uh, go and say this is closer to... Um, I would go to refer more to mockumentaries as precursors for this feature. I think this is so ahead of its time. Well, yeah, there are other... Mock- you could also say there well, mockumentaries like This is Spinal Tap yeah. are also there, no. but they're more specifically situations where everybody's consented to be on camera. The same thing with An American Family was everyone had consented to be on camera. There are other stories prior to the Truman Show working off the premise of someone who doesn't know they're being filmed. Okay. Paul I mean, Bartel, the great indie filmmaker. Bald, the bald ginger from Rock and Roll High School. Among other things. Yes, yes. I'm just getting him, putting a face more. on him. Uh, did one called Secret Cinema around 1968, which is about a woman who finds out that her life is being filmed and screened for an audience at a little movie theater. He remade this in the 1980s as an episode of Amazing Stories, the mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg anthology show. 
And there was, it was felt there were enough similarities between that and this that there was a lawsuit yeah. in the aftermath. The 1980s Twilight Zone revival also did a story about uh, a man who realized there be, that he and others are being surveilled. In this case, it was by aliens. When I was watching this movie for, for the first time with my boyfriend, that was where he kind of got an idea of what was going on from. Was, oh, this is like that Twilight Zone story. And I'm saying, well, I was thinking more of amazing stories, but... But in any case... You see, once once we get to the Truman snapping and realizing that at least he's the center of this world and starts trying to manipulate it on his own, I'm actually thinking back to Man Bites Dog, the Flemish film, film about a documentary crew chasing a ser- traveling a mass murder. I don't think he was necessarily a serial killer. He didn't have a theme. Well, but in the 90s, we were starting to think much more about how real any interaction can be if it involves trying to track real people. I mean, you know, natural born killers, it was yeah. four years prior to this. Right. Because the talk show culture really. Is yes, that's, top, I think that's, really that's just up. it. We had, we had the talk show culture pretty much until, I'd say, Survivor. We, we were done with the phony the phony phony people and needed real people to traumatize again. But in any case, as has been pointed out, yes, the Truman Show did seem to, a lot of people did seem to get the wrong idea from the Truman Show and went into reality TV, but in most cases, the people involved do consent to being on television, and that is going to affect how they act and how they're treated. What someone did... In all places, TV tropes noted, though, is that the thing that really reflect resembles what the Truman Show is came a lot later, and that was YouTube's family channels, where parents yes. raising their children mm-hmm. would raise their children from the cradle on yeah on these and. Thank God for these, law. Thank God well, for lawyers. Well, no, that's the thing. Uh, because it's a new technology and a new technique, there's horrific exploitation with those kind of channels well, no, going and that's on. Why I'm saying that they and gotta... that's probably the closest to what Truman's experience is. Yes. No, and it's a classic Fight Club scenario where this is a commentary on toxic masculinity, yeah. not a DIY on how to be toxically masculine. Right. Well, in any case, uh, this is one of Navarro's, uh, Philip Weiss score cues here. Mm. This is, uh, I think it's called Anthem from the Palakatsi soundtrack from 1988. It's a, it's a really lovely cue. Mm-hmm. I do think that this is one of the most interesting stretches of the film. And the whole story is... And this, again, is, I think, one reason we're wanting to cast Carrie is about someone who not only realizes what that they're being manipulated, but are trying to claim their own power and realize their full potential, which is something Carrie, by this point, dearly wanted to do as a performer. He, there, there's a reason, it shocked a lot of, it was kind of shocking, almost, when everyone had expected him to just churn out sequels to stuff like The Mask or Dumb and Dumber right away. 
I mean, there was a Nintendo Power contest where you could be an extra in the mask too back in the mid nineties. Yeah. They never got fulfilled. And you're telling me they did not send somebody got was denied the opportunity to meet Alan Cummings. I'm afraid so. Damn. There was an apology in the final issue about whoever won that. There contest. were lots Sorry. of apologies from Nintendo Power when it came to movie related stuff. Yeah. I mean, geez. But uh. But with. Harry, one of the, there are several overarching themes to Jim Carrey's career that you don't see with a lot of other comic actors of his generation, or even actors, and one of, and one of them, which was noticed pretty quick by the end of the 90s, was how many of his roles prominently involved television in some way. Uh, Dave Kerr did an article for Film Comment about this in 2000 that, I mean, it goes back at least as far to Earth Girls Are Easy where his character, you know, is parroting TV catchphrases and stuff as a way of trying to relate to Earth. Then you, then there's the fact that what, what, how much of Ace Ventura's dialogue and references are pop culture references. It's someone who's been shaped by television. Carrie was born in 1962, by which point television was just a regular part of people's lives. It was no longer a novelty. And so that, so, and much of his, as he was grown, as a child, he would, he figured out how to do imitations. They were a major inspiration for him. Dick Van Dyke was a key hero of his. And you see that in Ace Ventura. You see that in a lot of the characters he did on In Living Color. A lot yeah. of them are, have some kind of relation to television. Yes. Then And then with The Mask, you have someone, again, who has been shaped by art and pop culture. In, this, in, his, in Stanley's case, when he's, it is released by The Mask, it reflects itself in the lighthearted nature of golden age cartoon characters who are often an underdog, which is very much what Stanley is. Now he has the power to get back at the bullies. Then, Dumb and Dumber doesn't really, is kind of an anomaly in that it's not, in television doesn't really shape the plot. But then you get to Batman Forever, where the Riddler uh, has, de is de becomes who he is because his virtual reality television helmet goes awry. And then he starts using people's fascination with television and related technology to become, an, in, with the intent of becoming an all-powerful supervillain, mm -hmm. who, who, whose whole, I mean, he's basically a tech bro a, a decade or two before his time in Riddler. He, he's going to use people's fascination with his technology to steal their personal information and become an object of blackmail and theft. <laughs> then you get to the cable guy. And this is where Carrie decided to somewhat deconstruct what a character like Ace Ventura would be like in a less absurd setting. In that he's not only in that the cable guy is not only clearly shaped by television because it was really the closest thing he had to a friend as a child, but that it's permanently warped the way he can look at the world. Mm -hmm. And that he even wants to have friends 
is warped by warped by that. And then you get to this movie, which is someone who is shaped by television, not because he watches it, but because he's on it and is be, beholden to all the tropes and cliches we associate with it, uh, which we associate with good drama, and has to okay. realize that and take his own destiny. That hit, I was, as a... As a child, I knew what good drama... I, I understood soap opera was not good drama. And a lot of the cliches are very much soap opera stuff. So let's, let's not... I, so, I mean, again, it goes... And going through my notes, it's kind of like how... Um, here, here you go. And it, and it goes back to the scene just be, before and Natasha McElm is introduced as... Marlon is just being all over the place. Yeah. And then, of course, you have uh, Hannah, correct? Yeah. Uh, you know, Polly. It's like, no, he's a beta. He's not, he's not an alpha. Yeah. I'm just saying, you, you either, you know, if he doesn't have that personality, you don't play into that. Mm -hmm. I would have punched Marlon in the face. I definitely, yeah, no, I, I'm not saying I have punched many friends in the face, but I have punched friends in the face for putting me out of my comfort zone. Well, the um, other thing... And no, I did not punch them in the face. I gave them a slap, waited them, throw the punch, and then beat them. Senseless, but... Mm. Okay. Yeah. Now, continuing how this reflects where... One, what is one of Carrie's... It is something that Carrie is genuinely fascinated by, is television, from the interviews I've seen with him. He's gone on record as saying his favorite movie is Network. Well, I mean, that's, um... And that's, which is really interesting companion piece to this. Now, you ask me, how could people watch The Truman Show for 30 plus years? Well... Yeah, it only gets good you look at... once, once Murphy Law takes over the entire spr sprinkler effect. I will give it the best You're extras not... of all time. Like, man, they stick to their character, and I love the hospital scene. But think about how even the television he watches is being he watches in universe is manipulated to be encouraging him effectively never to leave the island mm. to always be grateful for what he it, it it's guilting him into being grateful for what he has even if it's not what he wants but also it's suspiciously in the tone of a lot of the messaging you see in hallmark movies now again going back to what no, this this guy is this guy is not raised on good drama. He is raised on absolute shite drama. But I know it's for the suckers. You're going on, I think, in, in circles too. No, bit. let me explain. What is what it? You can say that stuff like. Hallmark Christmas movies especially, but they do the, this kind of stuff all year now, is not good drama, and I would agree with you. But why is it so popular then? Part of it is that for a very large portion of the American population especially, there is something to be said for the absolute comforting tone of these films in which nothing too bad happens, no problem cannot be easily solved within 90 minutes where uh, 
the tend to glorify the small town experiences and especially and that's what makes gremlins so much fun well yeah it's <laughs> so it's so easy to subvert and so funny but i'm but just saying people, like, the people who watch hallmark mark movies are not going to watch gremlins not a, well, it's not necessarily true i suppose there isn't a lot of overlap but it's that these films are made on a cookie cutter schedule that have barely any real, they're struggling, they're no, noticeably struggling to have any kind of diversity in how they are cast or shot. And if there is, there's often a nasty backlash. Yes, no, it's... it's Like, uh, there was practically a brain drain at Hallmark of some of the, some creatives or stars like uh, Candace Cameron Burr. Mm. And even the guy who, was pro, who used to be head of the network moved over to... Uh, what they, I think they now call Great American Family. Yeah, no, I think I saw... Like, Hallmark was trying to diversify the the yeah. Christmas movies. Because they make like double-digit numbers of these a year now. Mm. But they want still movies where it's only white, heterosexual, middle, upper-class middle couples. Yeah. And nothing... And nothing more than... No, it goes... This it, idealized environment where... Every nobody ever struggles for work where homeless people don't exist where real problems do not exist. No one thinks about what's going on in the news. In Sea Haven, the only the outside world is supposedly this awful, terrible place. Yeah, we're getting well. You're not awful and terrible. We're getting to the surgery scene. Yeah, I, I want to people... know the compensation on this for the for our surgery. Well, this environment is so safe that hardly anyone gets hurt. According to the backs to the backstory material, about half the people at the hospital are actual doctors and nurses. In case anyone, especially Truman, were to get hurt, right? They're just saying and most of them are actors, right? It's a scalpel, and yeah. <laughs> these people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and that doesn't mean anyone's getting hurt. They're just faking. The amputation, but... No, they're faking the amputation, but I'm just saying, as Truman's looking through the window, and they know he's looking through the window, yeah. they have to draw blood. Okay. But this also goes back to not only the Hallmark crowd, but the Disney adult crowd, in that there's this crazed desire for an idyllic existence that, you know, where people don't have actual problems to deal with. Uh, it's people don't need to clean up people's rooms aren't cluttered people don't have don't face any problem that cannot be solved simply by believing in the magic of Christmas or giving up having any kind of life beyond the small town or moving back from the city which is a very common theme in these movies oh yeah no and having these cute little homes it's it doesn't matter you can't go above your station and you certainly can't go below it if there are any people who are disprivileged it's so you the protagonist can lift them out of their squalor but and there's this huge receptive audience for that kind of entertainment that i mean people binge watch these those kind of christmas movies or similar or tv shows there are tv shows about basically mm -hmm. nice people in nice communities and 
people, they call them comfort, what do they call it? They call it comfort viewing. And in the Truman Show universe, it's clear that many people find just watching this guy have a perfectly ordinary and happy life, untroubled, is something that makes them happy. It helps them forget about their troubles. It's vaguely aspirational. I just, but you say that, I, I guess I just can't make that connection with those people then, because it's like, Again, the show doesn't get good until everything goes wrong. Well, for to you, maybe it doesn't. But it's, well, no, it, it's like, okay, it's an escape from reality, escapism. It's like, this isn't like a video game where you can at least try to kill a boss. Uh, and Truman, perhaps he's had inc- incidents developed for him to do the Hallmark hero stuff. We don't know the other... Point. We don't know. We only get three, four days worth of story in this feature. Yeah, basically, I think the action unfolds over about a week. I, I, I'd like to believe three or four days. Because again, I just love that this is Murphy's Law telling telling a, a Christoph to shag off, mm-hmm. like one thing after another, another it's, screwing up. It's, and action, I still don't know how the parachuter got into this movie, got into the show eventually. <laughs> I don't see how he could pull that off. The dome was already built, and I never noticed that the camera is that obvious on, <laughs> on the uh, Spencer cam or the trash cam. Well, you didn't notice it until now. But as the Nick at Night special that they so did... That's a good thing about this being only 90 minutes because it encourages rewatching. Yes, a a three-hour movie, which I think probably would not, serve it better. No, I don't think it would have been served better in a longer run time. I, I just watched and enjoyed The Last Emperor. So, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I want to see Truman get arrested by the Soviets and spend five years. <laughs> Maybe that's what happens once he gets out there. See, Hollywood... I'm not with the WGA yet. <laughs> the point of the story, but the point of the ending is that since it is that Truman's fate is no longer in the control in or in in universe or out of universe, he is, the ending means he is completely free. No one, no one can dictate his end. No one dictates his end. How things work out for him, either in universe or out of it. Uh, I don't know. I didn't see the little spinny top. Trip. <laughs> I I'm just saying. Yeah, that's 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 now. There is a degree of naivety. Like, uh, no, it, it it could you could still play this guy. Like, Kristoff could have been playing four D. Should be playing four D chess here. But, but he. But I think that's part of the point too. Is that well, he think, doesn't know how. Well, no, I think Kristoff, as I noted, is has en- womb envy. That's an interesting way of putting it. Well, no, yeah. he, he, this is, he's not like, again, going back to South Park and the number two episode, it's like we, men don't get to be, and definitely are not trained to be compassionate. We're trained to make you survive, dare I say, Spartan-like. We're not supposed to nurture, and, and especially in this idyllic world, like, there's a reason you killed a father to create trauma, not the mother. That is a good point, that that was the character Kristoff chose to, to kill. Because he, he does care for Truman, but in a very twisted way. Well, I'm just saying that this is this is his his baby. Yeah. Literally. Right. 
And as in, this is where Jim Carrey cuts loose, and I'm saying, no, I don't think this is about the character changing. I think it's about the parents who were dragged. <laughs> who dragged their... No, listen, Jill, it's a Jim Carrey movie. You'll have fun. When's he going to start being funny? <laughs> I think the movie is extremely funny even before this. Do you think a nine-year-old? I don't know. This was a PG-rated movie. Yes, this, this, was, this was actually Carrey's first high-profile PG movie, actually, after he became a bit. Yeah. But, uh, no, it, it's not cutting loose so much in a comic way is that... No, it, it, like, And this happens in The Cable it, Guy, too. It's basically deconstructing that attitude as to what would actually make someone suddenly act in such an off-the-wall way. That it comes... That in Truman's case, it comes from a lot of repression and paranoia, growing paranoia that he doesn't know how to handle just yet. He Because know, he, he knows something is wrong, but he's also running up against the fact that no one else seems to notice or care. And, and having never experienced these kind of feelings before he doesn't know how to handle it. Right, and I gotta watch the cops later on and mm-hmm. later on see if they actually have guns because yeah. again, I don't know how Smith and if Smith and Lesson can get a product placement in this series. Yeah. This is where, really where you see this was a major inspiration on WandaVision, which is another story about why people could get themselves completely lost in completely benign or bland situations. But in in Wanda's case, though, she... Like, this, this is... Like, you... Unless you... Unless every... Every week, at least, he gets in one zany event, I don't see... And I, I don't see be, people sure idealizing. I'm sure they managed to find plenty of benignly wacky situations for him over the years. But, yeah, I'm just saying. To be honest, this is the point where I think the horror element really starts slipping in. I mean, that's... I I understand horror by the most basic definition. Well, this is the, the very fact that things become... On the one hand, it's funny that things become progressively more absurd as ways to try and get Truman to turn back. Yes. But at the same time, he is that he is genuinely frightened. No, I. And he's act, and that's part of why he's acting out now. He's trying to hide the fact that he's frightened as much as possible. And as they point out, he he doesn't he is so desperate to get away he can't really plan ahead for what he he's never wanted to do before this badly and to say where is he supposed to go how is he going to pay for it it's the kind of and the realization that everyone is trying to work against you is genuinely terrifying it's what makes something like well, other stories that have a bearing on this one would include the Stepford Wives. Yes, no, I... Or I, invade, the various Invasion of Body Snatchers iterations, but especially the 1978 Philip Kaufman version. Yeah, no, I, I, I get I get the horror elements there, but mm-hmm. if you're not... 
genuinely, if, if you don't convey fear, mm-hmm. I, I know it's subtle storytelling, I, but if you don't convey fear, your audience is not necessarily going to be afraid with you. What? That's no. what I... When I first saw this film, and I think it was about early 2000 on VHS, this was when I was, I was already a Carrie fan by that point, but this was around the time I really was realizing how talented Carrie was, and I'm going to get more into that, how that, how that, how that in a little while, but it was at this point in the film, I was starting to get, genuinely get upset. Because he, he, he's genuinely frightened and terrified. Well, no. And everyone's working against and him. I think, that, I think that... And they're being much too hard on him. They're starting to get cruel. Well, no, and I think, but I, think, I think a lot of that goes, um, goes into our own um, natures of dealing with a town we definitely don't fit into. Mm-hmm. Um, you I mean, be, being... It's not just frightening, well, but no, it's I, also horribly sad. Yes. No, I'll give you the sadness, but I'm just saying when we... Growing up, you, you're having to learn how to deal with your um, your autism and how to deal with people. And I'm not trying to make this personal. I'm bringing up my own experience. For me, my result for being picked on for just not being the rich townie mm-hmm. um, and having people even mock you mm-hmm. is like, well, I'm going to the, I'm learning how to be a wrestler and I already know martial arts. I'm looking for, <laughs> so I guess it's more of a, more of a statement on how one approaches fear. Me, I wanted to go and kill it, and you had you were more along the carry lines or the Truman lines. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a cruel. This is cruel. What am I going to do? And I, I thought this was cruel, and this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so. But the sad thing with the sad thing about life is we never get to do what we want to do. Which there, you 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 you, you got me on the I mean <laughs> I love that detail is pointed out that he must always hold, hold the, the beer, beer to <laughs> show the label. Yeah. Yes. So but I can't believe he did not like this is a this is a line coming up. How can anyone expect me to carry yeah, on these, these circumstances? It's just not professional. Unprofessional. Right, it's like okay, Carrie should probably the Truman should have probably further leaned into that. Like, what is unprofessional? Yeah. He, but he's he did just try and attack his wife though. He feels terrible about this. He's feeling a, he's yeah, but of, he, she's just further leaning into the reason to. But that doesn't make it right. He's trying to strike out without hurting anyone. Because for all that his life, his surface life has been shaped by how people in Sea Haven act, he is a genuinely good person and genuinely kind person. That was the upside of being, I, in a way, that was the one upside of his isolation. Oh, but that's, again, is he though? Now, now we're going to the deeper psychology stuff. Uh, is he? Like, 
a genuinely good person. That's the only thing he know he he's living off stereotypes. I could see the bright burn version of this movie. Yeah, so it's it could be possible someone could go be much more damaged. But in a way, that's already what the cable guy was. Which why I put it down is that's the first perfect. I mean, you can say what you want about network, Mister Carey. No, this that would be the perfect B movie. <laughs> People get touched by the first feature, and then you kick them in the balls. The second feature. But. Or 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 you get to, or you get to see a cat bus. I do agree with Grave of the Fireflies before My Neighbor Totoro. Well, the going but this ties back into why Carrie wanted to do something like this. He had a miserable time working on the second Ace Ventura movie, which is why he decided to drop out of doing the sequels to The Mask or Dumb and Dumber for New Line as soon as he could and sign on something like this instead because he did not want to become defined by surface mannerisms like catchphrases. He would, he did not care for repetition. No, This I... is the first significant scene now that we get to see the base. This is, again, this is where I would have, this is where I first got to see the move, the first got experienced the movie yeah turned around this was where you you first came yeah and first time i saw it on sale on itunes i picked it up yeah this but, is what i mean I, I would cut the credit sequence out or you just make it a little you don't need to introduce christoph okay. hannah I mean, and marlins yeah but anyway carrie after his break from 94 he was living a well, it had been about 15 or so years in the making, a level of stardom he had never expected to achieve, and that he had worked so hard to make any kind of living, especially given the financial hardships his family had as a teenager, which was when he was, he was getting into professional comedy when he was 18. And he had figured out by the early 90s what he had really wanted to do as a performer and that he wanted to give audiences what they wanted and one night as he put it he realized he want that people audiences wanted to be free from concern as carrie put it so he he adopted a stage persona that was joyous and carefree that's that's what the all righty catchphrase mm comes yeah. from it comes from this in that doing a simple introduction hi, hi my name is jim gary how are you doing this evening all righty then <laughs> seeming to not really care about an audience's reaction and that loosened an audience up and freed them up to laugh but soon with the huge success he was seeing as a performer in movies he found himself having to maintain that in all his public appearances too well kind of like truman and he was starting to get genuinely frustrated and angry about this well but i guess that's more so he realized the only way he could he had to find some way to release the darker and deeper parts of himself as a performer and that was why he started doing films like this because that was the release valve uh, that that is philip glass there that's one of the best gags in the movie and Uh, again 
factors into why these would be recycled cues from this well, corner. Never mind, this guy's been on the keyboard for probably 15 years at the very least for this show. Yeah. Uh, but, and I don't somebody, know. Whether it's I, TV the, tropes that point out the brilliance of this. Truman isn't crying because he's reunited. He's crying because this is just the final confirmation everything is fake. Well. That the, the father suddenly turns up that. Yes, yeah. No, <laughs> no well, one else realizes that. Well. Yeah, it's a perspective, but it's perfect. Again, the, the, the uh, perspective is so important. But, um, no, when you're going back to Carrie, it's like... I like the shirts. Love him, protect him. It's like, that's the mantra of everyone working on the show. Yes. I mean, it, but when it goes to the Carrie, like, again, going back why I don't, like, the only, the only person I would get, take away an Oscar nomination for would be Nick Nolte. No, I think no, no. If we're talking about the nineteen ninety eight, and this what the it was one that was um that was won Oscars. by yeah ninety eight Oscars. Tom Hanks. It, uh, it was won by Roberto Benigni. Which yeah, hindsight being twenty twenty, but the only person I'd say you'd get rid of the nomination for to bump carry in would now be the, Nick Nolte because you're going to give James okay. Colburn the Oscar for Affliction okay. anyhow. Now this is the point where we finally get the full scope of what has been done to Truman. We, this is, I th again, I think this is a brilliant trick of the structuring is just the revelation of how the show actually is created uh, and how, uh, how horrible, the, what, how horrifying the nature of Truman's existence actually is when you give it thought is that all the black people, all the black people, they had to go and move out to build that studio. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just being realistic. It's right behind the Hollywood sign, and it's got to be the size of the Magic Kingdom at the very least. And, and how they really just open things up at this point to show just how many people are invested in Truman. I, yeah, but that makes me that but, that brings me to Ready Player One, our constant search to be disconnected from reality. Well, no, it's not so much a disconnection from reality as connecting in a false reality. It's what it's parish it's parasocial relationships, where we feel we know these people that we see on television, or online and although it is possible to truly interact with people on one-on-one -on -one case that's not the case for actors or musicians or someone like Truman especially when one of them isn't even aware that there are that many people invested in what they've seen now oh come on I'm sure Truman can give us a, like I don't know maybe being a being a little sn snarky person like myself I would have gone with the bigger than... Yeah, see, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, I would have tried having a bigger than Jesus <laughs> moment. A dead one with that. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, uh, It's just crazy that the kid was able to get past the barbed wire. Well, he's small, huh? It's barbed freaking wire. But no, this did give me the idea, like, maybe if we could do a professional wrestling promotion where it's not reality TV, 
like Tough Enough or AEW All Access or Ms. and Mrs. Total Divas. No, we just stick a guy in there. We're going to film you 24 hours a day. I think... I think this could have all been avoided, their issues, if you actually basically went out and started to say to Truman, yes, you are the center of the world. <laughs> I know, that's not being normal, but yeah. just know what normal is. <laughs> yes, and then, again, talking about how <laughs> you're being raised on bad drama. <laughs> To say that, well, we're just going to make the father an amnesiac for 22 years. It's 1990-freaking-8. I think Mary Kate, or was it Ashley? I don't know, who fell off the horse. In the last film. <laughs> yes. The, this is the point of the first viewing that... This was the part when it suddenly burst into tears. I, the, that Truman was not a wanted child. Yes. Means that this is, th this is the true horror of Truman's situation that hopefully we'll never see repeated in real life is that this, the whole world loves Truman, but he can never know that love, and he can never know real love within the Truman Show because everyone else is an actor. His entire continued existence is dependent on him never really knowing what, what it is to love another person or be loved mm -hmm. by them in a sincere way. And it's a, it's a horrific kind of abuse, of slavery even, that they're not even aware of. Well, they're unhappy without realizing what, what the true core of it, which would be too horrific for many people to take if they did know. Yeah, but... But Truman holds up the way he does. is pretty extraordinary. Well, I mean, you have that in the sense that, uh, I mean, yes, the situation towards his indentured servitude um, as such, but I would say when you... Again, there's so many people though who find in in this they find comfort in the Truman's life. And they don't but they don't think about it. We don't think but I'm about just saying, how much No, they it... don't think about the horror, but I'm just saying I think a lot of them would trade the it, it goes back to the Matrix, uh, when they when they basically anybody could become an agent because not everybody actually wants to address their right. own reality. Right. Well, that's the well. That's what Christoph's basically saying here. Is that he he Christoph is not gave Truman a chance to lead a normal life. So why would he give? And he's happy that way. Why would he give up? And this is what comes into the conceit of untapped potential is that Truman is naturally, being born a human with free will, capable of all sorts of things they can put their mind to if they would be allowed the chance to use it. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, one thing that attracted Carrie to this part and why Weir thought it was a good match for him. Because Carrie does have very much an everyman appearance, 
like Tom Hanks, or Tom Hanks and Robin Williams do too, but as noted, everybody knew they could do drama by that point. Hell, Hanks had all ended up with a reputation as America's dad with that, well, with that in mind. Carrie is it, but Carrie is, he does have as much of an ordinary schmo appearance, but it is somewhat off. Well, I mean, that's the only way, only way to become charming. And Natasha, you don't decorate your room with your merchandise. I'm sorry. <laughs> the say no. Like, um, I don't think that counts. Protest items count as merchandise in that sense, huh? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of brain brainwashing yourself to keep on keeping on. <laughs> Yes, no, I would like some fatalities from the outside world being distracted by the Truman Show. Again, I think it's just... it goes back to play, Ready Player One, where you see houses being set on fire as the mother is play, won't turn off the oven as yeah. she's trying to play a FPS. I mean, there were a lot, as you might expect, because the movie makes no attempt to hide it, a lot of religious allegory oh, in yeah. the Truman Show. And that... Oh no, Kristoff is God. Well, you can see it as God or you can well, see, see it as... as, as no, I, I bring up Dante's Divine Comedy. Yeah. Uh, and the, my notes. Yes, yeah, the Divine Comedy or... You know, still got piano going there. <laughs> Took a few viewings to catch that one. <laughs> but I like how it undercuts the what, any Intensity. sentimentality yes. there. Oh, no, they, they... No, this is a brilliant scene yeah. where Carrie spooks Giamatti. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that's where I was really interesting is, as I said, we have a cable guy, which is about a man who effectively gets raised by television with horrifying results. Yeah. We have this movie in which a person is raised on television but manages to break free from it and find their own realization. What is the next step then? Come on, can't figure it out what the next step is then? Mm, what, cinema? Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I mean, cinema, I mean, next step is, as I go on, would be you know, different media, I would presume. No, it's... this. Is, the Cable Guy is a movie about a man raised by... On television. television. Yeah. This is a movie about a man raised on television yeah. who realizes what he... what has manipulated him. The next step would be is the manipulator. To, yes. Man on the Moon is the conclusion of the spiritual trilogy, in a sense. Uh, the one who becomes television destroyer of worlds. <laughs> Yeah, the the the, re, the problem that doesn't really work is because Coffin was neutered. And to an extent, but that was going to happen. <sighs> it is. It is. <laughs> yes. No. That's like. No, neutered. Not as much as one might think, because. Well, there's another podcast called Pop of the Morning that takes a look at social, how films reflect and 
comment on social political themes. They did back-to-back episodes on this movie and Man on the Moon. And basically, Man on the Moon is... That could be what happened to Truman after he left the bubble. <laughs> he bec- he, so now, we're going... he, now, he beca- basically becomes Kristoff's good counterpart and that he... And that he, instead of capturing pe- capturing someone in a bubble to make them live out his fantasies, creates strange temporary fictions that temporarily trap people, but but end with them ideally realizing what's been done to them, and then escape, and then finding they can escape that bubble too and rethink their own realities and or like Christoph oh, basically it's like he he starts walking the world to free people from their own illusions or well I cre- yeah free. but now i'm thinking more of the sixth day concept the brains of arnold schwarzenegger where the clones have expiration dates so I've just given you a depressing ending to Man of the Moon, justifying a depressing ending to Man of the Moon as Andy Kaufman was predestined to die of cancer once he got out of the Truman bubble. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> now, you have a cat, and you... Th- sorry, that is Chekhov's cat, and you don't use it. <laughs> Like, the cat should have jumped on a board, make a noise, boom, he jumps. <laughs> or that's where you catch that, huh, he's been snoring rather weirdly. Uh, one of the funny, one interesting, and my boyfriend's interpretation of what they might be thinking Truman had done was they thought he might have committed suicide or something. Well, no, that was something to be fearful of. Yeah. Yes. But, uh... Anyway. Uh, that's why I'm saying the cops don't draw their guns. They do have guns, so yeah. I think Smith & Wesson's are available, <laughs> Well, there, ha- there has to be some level of security in Sea Haven as much as there is some kind of health system. Right, but I'm just saying you can't afford, like, no no offense, I don't think you could actually slice or dice. I think that's the entire purpose of the, the um, kitchen utensil introduced in the film. Right. You couldn't actually hurt yourself with it. Yeah. Well, but continuing with where this film fits in Jim Carrey's larger career, because I'm not familiar enough with the rest of Peter Weir's filmography to feel comfortable commenting on that. I've only seen it's not enough of it, honestly. What's that? There's not enough of it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, he he's not a very prolific uh, director. No, especially not for like he he had he had his '80s breaking out of Australia. Yeah. And then no, he definitely slowed down. Yeah, but uh. With Carrie's larger career, um, basically, what's what starts with the cable guy as far as trying to expand his range and what he could do with his skill set continues with this movie, and then in Man on the Moon, uh, is basically taking the final steps. That's him truly living out the Stanley Ipkiss experience in a sense when he made that film and was chose to when he was uh, when whenever he was on the set of the film, assuming either the Andy Kaufman or Tony Clifton persona at all times. He didn't take it home with him, but 
he didn't take it home with him, but he it was a he found this that a very freeing experience to live in that persona as much as he could, because because he no longer had to worry about what other people thought of him. This was one of the things he had admired about Andy Kaufman in the first place was not having to worry about pleasing people. And by that point, Carrie had done that too often for, to his, for his own liking. So Carrie basically let himself get lost in the Andy persona for a while. And I think it shows in the film because as several people, critics have pointed it out, like Old Lieberman, but Carrie is so joyful in Man on the Moon. It, it's not on this, it's not a surface thing, but it's something you feel. There's a freedom to it that isn't in any, many of his other performances. Carrie is very much a performer who clearly loves to perform, is one way of looking at it. But probably no, never so free as he is in that movie. And in the wake of doing it, he was able finally to be him, more himself in public. When he took the more philosophical turn, you see in a lot of the interviews he, interviews he does on talk shows and stuff, he can still be a cut-up, but he doesn't have to be on all the time now, and he can be more, more relaxed and honest with himself. It, if, have you seen Jim and Andy the Great Beyond? No, I haven't. It goes very extensively to all this, and... It's not just about Man on the Moon. It's, it puts it in the whole context of his career, including this movie and The Mask and how it all, and Eternal Sunshine. Well, what's, the, what's, and, what's the Andy Kaufman element then? Because it's like, I, I, don't, I don't think you really get out of the Jim and Andy. Like, I don't know. I would be more attracted to the concept that there was an and, more of an Andy element, not just Andy the character. Well, I mean, that's if I was going to create a documentary like that, I would have to go and say, okay, like, yeah, maybe I'm just gonna rip off. Uh, I came from, he came from Hollywood. Is that available anywhere? Yes, it's on DVD. Okay, but Red Rover, Red Rover, mother lover. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I love. This is another. Yeah, this no, no, is the, the this is of the Poyantansi key. Well, I'm just saying, if you want horror elements, this yeah. is really when it sets Oh, it up. really leans into it in the back stretch. It, and again, it's... But I'm just, saying it's more, more, of, a, more of a trope. It back to this... More of a um, trope thing, not yeah, a... Omniscient, this omniscient view of we're see, seeing and feeling things the way Truman would. It is worth noting that there is a deleted scene that confirms that Marlon does see Truman escaping, but chooses not to go after him or let the others know. Yes, no, I'm aware of. Uh, I'm I am aware of that. No, it's so th- there was one person on the island who cared about him, maybe because yes. his experience was so broken. You might have had to delete that because we don't get to hear about the alcoholism unless you watch a Naked Night. Yeah, and we don't. Yeah, and, a lot of that's expanded universe and, material, and then, basically. And, and then the entire fact what? he is mouthing everything Kristoff says. Yeah. Like, no, a compassionate person would not do that. Well, that's the thing. He he can't be obvious about actually caring about him, but since they. 
have the closest relationship. Yes, no. Even if it was. But again, you still have to go back to stuff that's not available on the bloody disc. What Russ is mentioning is that when this film came out in 1998, Nick and Knight actually did a variation on the making of TV specials that were once really common prior to the internet and modern film journalism culture that rather than being a straight making of, was an in-universe documentary about the Truman Show, which features a lot of additional material about the secondary characters, including the backstory for Marlon, this actor, revealing that uh, he basically was brought into the show as a child not knowing the implications of what he was getting into because he had a stage parent. And... From there, developing alcoholism because he had to constantly drink beer for promotional purposes and occasionally having to go into rehab. So, and that ties into why he would have been sympathetic to Truman finally getting out of it because he'd known that what it could really do to a person's life. Mm. It's interesting how the film was promoted back in 1998 because most of the trailers did give the game away, but then the film itself doesn't really make it a secret that this is about a guy whose life is on TV. Well, what as I say, how you cut it. To how it's with. cut and presented is only gradually revealing the true scope of the horror involved and the extremes people will go to protect the lie. And I think that's very dramatically satisfying and again speaks to the core theme of the story of ultimately being on both an in-universe and out-of-universe level, someone reaching their full potential. (laughs) So some people were questioning at TV tropes about uh, how Truman could get over the fear of open water so fast. Oh, but, yeah, no, your dad didn't die. Well, no, it's not just that his dad didn't die, but since he's realized that he must have been manipulated into not care, being afraid of being afraid of the water, that meant that he probably had no reason to fear it in the first place. Well, and, and it goes so back where, well, and you go back to Pluto jumping on him the moment yeah. he thinks he, where we think everything's okay. Right. He's not really resist. He's not scared of Pluto. It's, mm-hmm. They indicate, like, oh, mm-hmm. keep him out of there by sending a Rottweiler there yeah. and having Pluto be jumpy. So. I do think, given that we only get a few minutes with Sylvia total, that they do manage to sell that they had a genuine connection with each other. Right. It's pretty impressive. Well, as I say, it's still a MacGuffin. <laughs> I mean, I don't know really MacGuffin. MacGuffin. Well, you don't know her. Like, we don't know. Besides, besides her. A MacGuffin can be substituted with anything, is what. Look, you could have given me a movie with a kitty, and I've been fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, why can't I have the cat? I do like the <laughs> yes. cat. How we... the things start falling apart at this point because no one expect Really? Expected no one can land it to ever get this far. Yeah. We're, we're getting to the video game portion of this story. Uh, but the idea of... But the religious interpretations of this film are really fascinating. I've, uh, I've seen 
interpretation, I've seen at least one interpretation that this basically is about the non-existence of God, that that, and how religion is really only a construct that keeps you isolated. Yes. Which... Through fear. Or there are interpretations that Christoph is basically Lucifer or Satan. Well, no, hence, hence my Dante notes. Um, no, and every, every every actor of that era wanted to play and the play it, the devil, be it Pacino or yeah. Peter Weller in the really shitty uh, Shadow Hours, which Weller is great in. It's just, man, how do you shoot like this is before it it felt like it was shot on lesser digital cameras than at the time of two thousand one. It really sucks because you got Brad Dorif, you got Michael Dorn, <laughs> Michael Dorn, the the real creepy guy villain from uh, The Mask is in it. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, but okay, so we are gonna fly a shuttle to the moon to go and arrest Kristoff, right? <laughs> I mean, this he is attempting to kill. I love, I love, he was born in front of a live audience. Yes. Well, my boyfriend said by this point, the clients, well, someone should have cold cocked that guy. <laughs> no, no, you don't, you don't mess the guy's Yeah, you really do hate, hate Kristoff by the end of the movie. It, I can see why they oh, did I, not I don't, Harry, I don't, Ed Harris yes. for Best Supporting Actor, even though they snubbed Harry. Right, but I'm just saying, um, you could say you hate him, but again, no, this is a man who felt betrayed. He's felt betrayed. Yeah, it, well, no, it's an honestly created villain because no, no, it's... villains think they're in the... The truly great villains are the ones who think they're in the right. And so, and there is something to be identified with. It. It's a sick, twisted love he has for Truman. And, but it's enough that you do want to see him get comeuppance, too. And, you see, and this is where it cut, it, I got to step back on the horror comparisons because this is not dead alive. Where mommy shoves, shoves, the shoves son in back into her womb. But it does bring back those in living color sketches about the. It about, is hard not to think of the <laughs> the sketches Carrie did in the later seasons of In Living Color about poor umbil- umbilical Barry, the kid who died who, as an adult cord. was still connected to his mother by the umbilical cord, so she could control him. And it that is a pretty funny precursor to this spiritually, but yeah, the whole so there is kind of in the end there is kind of this loose trilogy between Cable Guy, Truman Show, and Man on the Moon, and then mm-hmm. it it's ultimately about a full potential realized. And ironic, ironically, he. Never made any money again. I mean, it costs him the superstar status. Well, no, I don't. No, Man on the Moon didn't do well. That's true, but it, but I no, it could, it gave him an arti- more artistic credit. Uh, no, no, it, 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 no, it gave. And but then, then he's then buddy. he had some of the biggest hits of his career after that. Yeah, but they're pretty. Was, that was how big a star he was. I don't. Like, we I, used to be a lot more forgiving I, people of big stars having occasional disappointments, especially if they were taking a swing. But, like, you say that, the only movie I can think of after this that was Jim Carrey at, or there's a couple, Yes Man, 
and um, uh, Bruce Almighty. I mean, you have the Grinch, but we really want to remember the Grinch is the opinion of most people. No, it's not the opinion of most people. There are a lot of people who genuinely enjoy that movie. We're just not weird about it. And, and yeah. that was actually the biggest hit of his career up to that point. Right. I, I, at I, least in this country. And Bruce Almighty was the biggest hit of his career as a leading man. Because technically, you know, Batman Forever and the Sonic the Hedgehog movies, especially if you don't take inflation into account, were bigger, especially yes. internationally. But as a leading man, Carrie had a very strong run. And it only really faltered it... when movie stars in general started becoming less important. Well, I'm just saying, I think, what, I, what I'm saying is I'm thinking of his attempt to go dramatic because Robin Williams was not a movie star until Aladdin I don't think that's a fair statement I don't see well he was doing R-rated movies primarily yes it's true but that doesn't mean he wasn't a movie star I don't think he I don't think he had opened I mean are you saying it was Robin Williams who opened the Dead Poets Society yes who else would it have been I'd like to believe in the power of the director Weir wasn't never a big box office dude. I think this was his biggest hit. I don't. Although I'd have to look at. All right, there's the there's there's the ultimate video game portion where you run out of (laughs) your open world. Yeah. Like oh, there's the invisible wall. There's a line in one of the Doctor Who expanded universe novels that I think we've just bumped into the sky. Now, this is the sequence that really gets to people from what, you know, what I've read about people's reactions. Yes. This is... Oh, no, this this could have... You could sell this movie on the last half hour, is what I'm saying. Like, you... Oh, okay, so he he had... His, his father comes back, and now we're going to expose the entire game to the audience. Or I'm saying, like, I, I, I would have cut six minutes off. I would have cut six minutes off or made something... Rhea different. I did not need to know Marlon, Hannah, and um, Kristoff before the movie started. Well, no, I think no, I like that it's not a sin for the audience to know more than the character does. Well, but we're already going into the movie knowing more than the character does. Yeah, that's the point. We I don't, know just I don't, enough more than the I, I'm does. just saying like I don't need to further like, nail it home. I know what I'm watching. And again, that's like my comment. Like, I really would want to further get engaged by not having the cinematic elements. Just give me, like, until you get to this act. No, and... I think it. No, I think I see the point. It, it is a movie. That rewards rewatching it. And I think this is one of the things we're not seeing with a lot of contemporary big studio filmmaking. Is that once it's all plot point, plot point, plot point, and spoil and spoilers and stuff. And but once you get there's nothing to go back to once you've seen it. Well, I would say yes and no. Well, I'd probably say no just because that's 
where people put their Easter eggs now. But Easter, Easter eggs is not... No, it doesn't inspire you to rewatch it for genuine reasons. Like, oh, I'm a completist, is that statement. Instead of trying to further break down and interpret said feature. Like, I would say... Michelle Gondry. Um, with... Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine. Science of Sleep is another good one. Yeah. And I would even... I'm, I'm more kind to be kind, rewind, than a lot of people. That one didn't quite meet its whole potential for me. And this is just a year after Don, Mark, Marky Mark's Shining Star comment. I'm sorry. <laughs> but basically, uh, Carrie, uh, lots of actors do want to break away from what makes them initially popular. Oh, and I don't... Carrie, Carrie just turned that subtext into really obvious text in this run of movies. Yeah, the which ending I think, is he walks away from being the guy who just parrots catchphrases. Which I think, again, further further warranted his snubs. It's like, we didn't want you to be an actor. Well, no, I think... We I wanted think you. that the reason Hollywood couldn't accept him as a serious actor the way they could someone like Robin Williams was partially because he seemed to break out so fast... And in such a low-brow manner, even compared to someone like Williams. Because, you know, talking out of your butt is about as low-brow as it gets. And then, I mean, he even did jokes like that from the Oscar stage. But if they did... But, I mean, Carrie would have... Certainly wouldn't have minded an award, but he also noted in interviews that it's a paradox... There were interviews around this time that point out it's kind of paradoxical. Even if you don't want an award, you... Yeah, I do... I think the... It's not about being the award, about it's about... Sylvia praying here, I think mm. it's significant. And further, if you do take... If you do believe in a higher power, then... And Christoph is a fault... The false... is like... The, the golden the false, cow. The, the false god, the Antichrist... And the reason, and that it's the actual deity that starts making things go wrong and getting, and encouraging Truman to leave. Actual acts of God. So. But, yeah. Talking about spewing catchphrases. Well, that's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole point. He, he does it the last time as sort of screw you to the, <laughs> screw you. Because he knows that, that this is going to be his ending as far as the wider world goes. Yeah. And now he's free. Mm. It is it's an extraordinarily beautiful end. This this cue is from uh, Mishima. Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. And if you've seen that film, it's kind of an amazing inversion of sorts of how, the, how that cue is used in that film. Where... It it underscores a character committing seppuku. Mm. Oh no, I could have seen him die and do it do a swan dive. Eh, I don't know what to do. Well, it was a sort of death in a way. Yes. 
and freedom. The sword of death and freedom. Yeah, here I this, love this. What else is on? <laughs> right. It's like that's almost as something point that's almost as chilling a line too is that most of the world really thought they cared about Truman and No, the moment the moment the show's over. Yes. No, we need But if anything that's better for Truman. Yeah, I don't know. We need House He's of the friends. House of the Burbanks. Let's see how we can get to the create a false narrative create a false narrative on people to create the false narrative <laughs> like no we could we could go levels like i got franchising here <laughs> truman and never mind as i say once you do a good 90 minute movie you get to expand into sequels or the prequels or the prestige tv no that i don't think that it makes sense with the story like this no it does I not think... make sense but it makes money <laughs> so the biggest note, all caps, first note, a satire ahead of its time? Oh, it's definitely ahead of its time in terms of how we would start, suddenly start relating to people on TV in whole new ways with the rise of the reality program and the rise of the internet celebrity and influencers. Thing, but it's they one of those... Influencers they couldn't have predicted at the time. I don't necessarily think so like that's just it it kind of lays the blueprints out as you even said like well that wouldn't be the first time people took the wrong ideas from well no no as i said i mean i mean there are other downsides too is that some people and you also get this it's similar to what happened with the matrix and that the term red pilled now is used by extreme right wing yes people. which Though a robot, the robots are help are like no the the problem the problem with the right is they confuse anger with they they confuse anger with passion. Mm -hmm. And while you know if you if you are just stop and not get overly involved right like you stop and try to analyze things mm -hmm. and not be angry just wanting to figure things out you're considered cold and droning yeah. so but uh okay you can't build him was he the ferry captain in the first scene because they built him as bus driver well when he was getting on this the the people running transportation would probably been taught to do a few different skills. Well, obviously they weren't, as he as he tried mm -hmm. to start the boat. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So, um, actually, we're talking about any deaths caused by people getting too involved in the Truman Show. I guess somebody noted there is some note. Someone confirmed that the bathtub guy ended up getting electrocuted. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Right, um... <laughs> but, yeah, uh, obviously there would have been some real-world damage. The show would have certainly done real-world damage in various ways. You see how people take parasocial relationships with celebrities way too seriously now. Well, I mean, you have that bit when you have people trying to break onto the show. Yeah. Um, but, uh... Let's see. But... 
I remember one, there used to be, you know, a much more thriving community for online film critics who had their own little websites. Well, actually, that's something I want to bring up. Um, There's a recent uh, podcast, uh, The Rewatchables. They did Chef. Yeah. And they had, um, uh, oh, I can't remember his name. He's a famous Korean chef. Mm -hmm. Um, He also has a podcast on the Ringer Network. And they were bringing up the fact that, you know, this was that movie came out at pretty much the end of food criticism. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to the fact that is there really any even movie criticism now? Because if anybody wants something, they go and look at Rotten Tomatoes. They don't don't even read it. Yeah. And then, and now the studios have figured out how to further manipulate things by approved, 98% approved on Rotten Tomatoes, asterisk, Mm-hmm. audience score mm-hmm. and you know audience scores especially in the United States but also, when you look at when you look at the middle of the country as um, the Waco kid would say mm-hmm. you're dealing with the the common people the salt of the earth the clay of the land you know morons and I hear Cleveland Little's laugh after that. Yeah. This is actually genuine. Yeah, I was. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, the death of criticism. I mean, it, it's it, basically gone to us podcasters. Well, they're, you know, they did that podcast and, of questionable quality about the rise and fall of Anacle News and how, unfortunately, the rise of internet criticism coincided with the death of print media and that meant a lot of established, really well-read critics felt didn't have as much work anymore. And there were a lot of wonderful indie, independent little websites for movie fans who go out and see movies and do really thoughtful reviews of them. And I don't know how to trace a lot of them now. I would think at best they'd be in the Internet Archive at this point. Uh, that had really thoughtful reviews of movies at the end of the 90s. And nowadays, this is another thing Drew McWeeny has talked about in his uh, formerly dangerous newsletter on mm. Substack, is that a lot of reviews these days do seem to be just parodying press releases more than anything. Oh, you see, that's just it. Like, once I, um, I mean, I wasn't following, I, I can't really say I've followed re- reading critical reviews unless it's something I'm looking into seeing. Well, no, that's um, where, where you get first get interested, but... But I'm just saying, I would say 2000, back when I was working um, at a call center, and obviously I couldn't go and write blogs because they had decent firewalls, mm-hmm. Marine Bank. Um, they, um, that the, you know, I, you know, if I wanted to kill time before I'm saving some... Uh, truck driver with a blown out tire in Kamloops, British Columbia. And there's nothing like waiting on Canadian customers. They are the best. Um, I would be, that was the last time I was reading RogerEbert.com. Yeah. Hell, I think he, when did he die? 2014? Yeah, I think so. So he was still around when I was reading. Yeah. So. I mean, there are some very good websites left, but the, it's harder to be a professional critic now because the film enthusiast. Now, I did like that term introduced in the uh, 
and Cool News Retrospective podcast, film enthusiast as opposed to a film critic. Yes. I mean, I fall much more into the enthusiast. Shut, shut up, right? shut up, shut up. We want people to keep, we want people to believe us. It's end all be alls. Um, <laughs> no, it's a joke, Marie. I'm joking. But, but yeah, no, it is film enthusiasm. But there were some, a lot, a lot of the early online critics, many of them were very thoughtful and uh, thoughtful. They were clearly younger and they did have a, younger frame of reference but they could write very thoughtful reviews and I, I miss a lot of those sites dearly and you're not there used to be a lot of great DVD review websites too yeah oh well that actually brings me to another David Chang was the was the chef yeah. um, brings me to another thought because um, we were saying well what happens after chef Oh, well, Scarlett Johansson's character cancels John Favreau. There's the divorce. The son doesn't want to get into being, like, a chef. Um, so, there you go. I guess I'm implying that the uh, woke culture that's been fed on MC, on Disney, just giving us enough. And other studios, you know. The, the, we go back to our one of our early podcasts where we were going on about people who take pride in not seeing anything between before 1975. Yeah. Or, I mean, I think that may have killed it because killed a lot of film cr- enthusiasm even because they're not... I mean, even the Ain't a Cool News type re- regular staff that used to have had people like Drew McQueen who were pretty well versed in... Well, but I'm just saying that... But, it it got worse over time. I'm and just saying, if you have people who have a standpoint saying you can't even acknowledge the past, yeah, um, then how do you even know what the present is? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, you can, you should you hate Birth of a Nation or the work of Lenny Riefenstahl? Yes, you should, but should you also appreciate it? You do not have to hand it to them. What do you is, mean? Is a saying I, I okay. like on Twitter. Okay, yes, all right. You do not have to hand it to them. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I got you used... You can be nu- nuanced uh, and thoughtful, but you can also just call a jerk a jerk. Okay, but I'm, I'm just saying, I've gotten accustomed to saving money by just taking my apple cider vinegar straight now. That's what I'm just telling people. Like, if you don't watch the old stuff, Battleship Potemkin is on HBO Max right now. Yeah. Or Max. Tomorrow? Or is it today? I don't know when they're changing it over. Okay. Well, all right. So we are getting up there. So I will do my bit of, if you want to be on the show, send an email to russthebus07 at gmail.com. That's R-U-S-S-T-H-E-B-U-S-07 at gmail.com. Offer me a movie, a theme, a director, an actor. Just try to focus on sub-100 minute material. And if you can figure a way to make a Milos Forman retrospective work, I would definitely love to hear that. Uh, (laughs) Rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast apps. I prefer that you subscribe to the 90 for Chill, the podcast with Catbus Russ feed. Not the, I'm trying to get away from paying Podbean $120 a year. So... Help me out there. Rate and subscribe. Five stars. I will reciprocate. Apple Podcasts is still the easiest app I've found. So 
If you're looking for that reciprocated review, the username is the Scoops Daily. Otherwise, I just gotta thank Station Marie Harden for looking after my butt for the last oh, going on twenty years, and I hope she's squeezing the ever undead shit out of Skimble Shanks because that's what he loves being loved, the one-year angel. So, got all my formalities out of the way. You can follow the Poetic Critic on Letterbox. That's the Poetic Critic. Um, if you're looking for further resources uh, about from Cool Minds, there's Jessica Ritchie on Twitter. Uh, username at Ruby underscore Stevens. And oh, otherwise, do you have any podcast subscript uh, suggestions? Because I'm kind of running low finally. Uh, I occasionally do listen to ones like This Had Oscar Buzz. Yes, they've been featured on Screen Draft a lot. Right. Mm. Uh, they're currently doing a series this month called 100 Years, 100 Snubs about films they felt should have had Oscar Oh, that's, that's interesting because I'm used to them just saying, you know, and then, like, I'm, mocking mocking the attempt to get the yeah, Oscar they, nomination. Yeah, they, they do. Uh, this was one of the films mentioned in the second episode, but they cover a lot of different interesting movies and I think a lot of the choices they're making were valid <laughs> okay anything else uh, I'm a big fan of TV guidance counseling yep. I try to check in once a week um, pure cinema podcast can be interesting okay because yeah I was trying to do blank check and it's like just based off the premise like why are we doing the entire Danny Boyle filmography right now because you want it because what they well because I thought the entire idea is like okay peak power Danny Boyle's blank check would have probably been beat the beach but the point is is that you have to take you can't get to peak power unless you consider everything else alright including the stuff that fails when the check bounces as they put it you're right so they they work with one filmmaker at a time, and they you know okay. they do the perhaps at least once a year to decide who they're going to do next. Okay, I did not. I see. It. Never really. Um, all right, then. So all right. Well, with that said, um, we that is your typical podcast, I suppose. We're forty minutes longer than what the movie was. That's not uncommon if you're gonna do. I that's why I'm saying that's a, that's a that's a typical podcast. So, all right. So, are you gonna do the catchphrase or am I? You can do it if you want. No, no, we're not doing the, doing the catchphrase. Can I hear a wahoo?